Open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13, that whole chapter. 1 Corinthians 5 is your text. Navigate on your device, open your Bible. You can follow the study at uh, transcript.calvaryhanford.com. The topic, the believers in Corinth are arrogantly tolerating a man unashamedly having sex with his stepmother. The title of our message, Sex and the Audacity. Ah, yeah, it's a groaner. All right, let's pray. Father, this morning we um, want to be engaged with the text. We want to understand what it meant to this first century assembly of believers, Lord, how it would minister to them. But of course, uh, the word was given to make application to ourselves, and we're, we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, and uh, without going beyond the text, Lord, we do want to know what you want us to hear today. We would like to see Jesus in this text, something that only you can do by your Spirit as you minister us uh, to us between the soul and the Spirit in that deep place that only you can reach. And so, um, do more than we think, Lord more than we ask for, and do it now in Jesus' name. And those who agree said, amen. Several periods in history have been referred to as the sexual revolution. One was in the United States from the 1960s through the 1980s. The so-called sexual liberation that it brought included things like this, increased acceptance of sex outside of traditional heterosexual monogamous relationships, the normalization of contraception and the pill, Public nudity, pornography, premarital sex, and alternative forms of sexuality, and the legalization of abortion. The sexual revolution ushered in a more permissive society. A permissive society is defined as one in which social norms become increasingly liberal, especially with regard to sex. We're still becoming increasingly permissive. According to a 2015 research study, in the early 1970s, premarital sex was accepted by 29% of the population. It rose to 58% in the period between 2010 and 2012. Attitudes towards sexual activity among two adults of the same sex also changed. Accepted by less than 20% before 1993, it rose to 44% in 2012, and it's at 56% for the generation born after 1982. On June 26, 2015, the United States Supreme Court issued a landmark ruling that granted same-sex couples the constitutional right to marry. The 5-4 decision in Obergefell versus Hodges legalized gay marriage nationwide, including in the 14 states that did not previously allow it. According to a recent article I read, and I quote, Kindergartners and other elementary, elementary age students in California's public schools will be taught to reject gender stereotypes, such as about clothing and color and toys, and to accept transgenderism as normative if proposed health guidelines are approved. There would be no opt-out option for parents. One recommended book in the guidelines tells the story of a boy who wants to be a princess. Another recommended book teaches students that there are at least 15 genders. That same book also tells children it is impossible to know if a baby is a boy or a girl. 
Now, to be accurate, a follow-up article uh, stated this, California Department of Education approved controversial sex education guidelines for public school teachers that encourages classroom discussions about gender identity and LGBT relationships, but removed five resources and books, including one that explains sex to students as young as kindergarten. And so it's an ongoing situation. It's definitely permissive, but is it progressive? That's one of the arguments for permissiveness, that it is humanity making its progress. Blow the dust off the 1934 book called Sex and Culture. Anthropologist J.D. Unwin found a universal correlation between monogamy and what he called a civilization's expansive energy. A non-Christian, he insisted that he offered no opinion about rightness or wrongness concerning sexual norms. Among the 86 different societies he studied, he not only found monogamy to be correlated with a society's strength, but came to the sobering conclusion that, and I quote, in human records there is no instance of a society retaining its energy after a complete new generation has inherited a tradition which does not insist on prenuptial and postnuptial uh, continents. In other words, once a society abandoned monogamy and became sexually permissive, it began to degenerate. First century Corinth was typically permissive and sexually immoral. That, however, was not the problem. The problem was that the believers were more immoral. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. They were worse than the world. Thus, Paul's focus in this text is more on them than it is the world. The church must take a stand against permissiveness. We must decry sexual immorality. But that starts at home, in the household of God, not outside. Our best efforts for biblical morality in society is to flee sexual immorality ourselves. God's will for us is to abstain from sexual immorality. Along those lines, I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, do you have zero tolerance when it comes to sexual sin in the body of Christ? And number two, do you have true tolerance when it comes to sexual sinners outside the body of Christ? Let's take a look within first in verses one through eight. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. That's pretty much everything I remember about the presidency of Bill Clinton. He is infamous for redefining what constitutes sex. If we're going to talk about sexual immorality, we need an understanding of what constitutes biblical morality with regards to sex and sexual relations. It's simple, really. It's in the opening pages of the book of Genesis, and it's verified by the reference Jesus made to marriage being in the beginning. God's gold standard for sexual morality is one biological male, one biological female, heterosexuals, in a monogamous marriage for as long as they live. God hates divorce, but he has given biblical grounds that would allow for divorce and subsequent remarriage in certain circumstances. They are infidelity on the part of a spouse or abandonment. Now, God says of this standard, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. That's from Hebrews 13, verse 4. So everything within God's standard, good, 
Anything that's outside of that standard, not good, immoral. So we don't have to continually try and make a list of, of immoral activities and wonder, uh, you know, that kind of way. That, that's a Clinton way of dealing with things. It's like, well, if I redefine what sex is or what sex relationships are, then maybe I'm not immoral. Does it meet God's standard? And if it doesn't, then it doesn't. Believers in Corinth were way short of the standard. Again, verse 1, I'm reading this particular verse out of the Christian Standard Bible because it's got a good wording of it. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and it's the kind of immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Everyone knew about it, including non-believers outside the church. Their liberality wasn't attracting them to Jesus. You know, sometimes we think that if we just are straightforward, and, and I don't want to use the word blunt, but if we just give out the gospel, people aren't going to like that, and they're not going to want to come back to church. And so that developed in a whole attitude of what are called seeker-sensitive churches. You don't want to offend anybody by telling them that they're hell-doomed sinners and that if they leave today and die, they're going to hell. You don't want to offend anybody. And so you dumb down the message until they become members of the church, and then somewhere along the way they hear the gospel and get saved. Uh, and, you know, the fact that the Corinthians were being liberal in their attitude towards sex wasn't drawing any Gentiles into the fellowship. They found it horrifying. When he said it wasn't even tolerated among the Gentiles, it means that in their sexually immoral secular society, incest was considered deviant. I want to pause briefly and discuss something about Corinth. Uh, just, it's kind of off subject, but you'll understand. We always hear that there were over a thousand male and female prostitutes in the temple of Aphrodite. I'm sure I've said that myself. But that's not exactly true. It turns out that was true of what historians call old Corinth, and that city was destroyed two centuries before Paul wrote. Uh, and so when you hear Bible teachers make that reference, it's not an accurate historical reference. Another historian writes and says, the size of the Roman temple of Aphrodite ruled out such temple prostitution. And by that time, she had become Venus, the venerated mother of the imperial family and the highly respected patroness of Corinth and was no longer a sex symbol. Now, don't misunderstand me. Corinth was an exceedingly wicked, sexually immoral city. It was a seaport filled with vice. But if we appeal to history, and we uh, do from time to time, we need to fact check. Uh, and so all I'm saying is, as a Christian, make sure that what you're telling people, if it's not in the Bible, if it's some piece of history or some other information, make sure that it's accurate. You can trust me, but I don't know about anybody else. No, I'm just kidding. Everything I say you should check out as well. And so just, just be careful because we don't want to be wrong about inconsequential things, letting people think that maybe we're wrong about the bigger things, and that is how to get saved and have eternal life. Uh, so back to our study. A man was having sexual relationships with his stepmother. We don't know if the father was out of the picture or, God forbid, if they both were having sex with her. The father and the woman were not believers or else they would have been included in the recommended discipline that's coming. Non-believing Corinthians would not tolerate incest. The church did. And Paul says it was out of arrogance in verse 2. Are you not puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you? Maybe they thought tolerance would show God's grace. 
that uh, God, you know, if grace abounds, sin ought to abound. And, and, but we don't know for sure because we're not told. But instead of arrogance, they ought to have mourned for the man and disciplined him for his own good. Remember this because uh, a lot of times, and I'll try and mention it again, but I sometimes forget, when we talk about church discipline, it sounds so harsh and overbearing and technical. But it starts with a mourning, a, 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 a sadness because a brother or a sister is in sin, which ultimately will lead them to ruin and, and could possibly affect others in the body of Christ. And so it's out of love, not, not out of duty, that we pursue these things. You might be wondering, how could Christians be so far off? How could they be worse than the surrounding culture? Well, we have what we call a Judeo-Christian heritage. When I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, it was the wonderful world of Disney and Bonanza. Now it's the masters of sex and Californication. There was a biblical standard in our society that was even adhered to by non-believers, and that's how we judge sexual immorality. The Corinthians had no such prior standard. Their pagan society, it was expected for a man to have several concubines and a mistress as well as a wife. Fornication and adultery were normal to them. Incest wasn't. They considered it deviant. But the idea was that if you were a Gentile Corinthian and you got saved, you wouldn't immediately think that some of your sexual practices were immoral because you'd had no real teaching on that and you had, there wasn't even a background in your culture in that way. And so we're not excusing them, not in any way, but I think sometimes we put ourselves in the story in ways that it doesn't make sense. Verse three, I indeed as absent in the body, but present in spirit, I've already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. One way Paul was present in spirit was by the inspired letter that was being read. Gordon Fee writes, he probably thinks of the reading of the letter in the gathered assembly in the, as the tangible way in which the Spirit communicated his prophetic ministry in their midst. <clears throat> For a minute, pause and think about this. You, you're coming to church at Corinth. Maybe it's a group not much bigger than this. And there's that guy who's committing incest, the incestuous man. Had they read this letter ahead of time or was it all just kind of news to them? And then it, it's already been pretty rough as, as far as Paul's corrections. And then he basically says, hey, you, row three, seat two, the guy that's committing incest, we're kicking you out of the church today. That's, uh, you know, people say, oh, the church mistreated me. Well, they didn't mistreat him. They treated him correctly. He shouldn't have been in their midst and they should have dealt with it prior uh, Paul didn't need to be there to judge the deed because it was well known to all. And that's also why he cut right to the chase without taking any disciplinary steps leading up to expelling him. A lot of times people, when they talk about church discipline, they have, you know, steps that you have to go through. And they say, well, why didn't he start at step one? Uh, it, it's because this was out in the open. Uh, it, it was, he was ready for the final step. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. This sounds really official. The assembled church had both the authority and the power to discipline a sinning member. With Paul's letter, they were told how to do it. Verse five, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul was describing two realms of life. The world outside the church is where Satan prowls about. 
It's where he is ruler. It's where his principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness dwell. It's where lives can only be ruined. The church is the place of light and life. It is replete with Holy Spirit power to be changed into the image of Jesus. It offers spiritual hope and protection. It's hard for us to understand the gravity of being put out of a church. Today, when believers sin, if their church starts to deal with it, they simply go next door to another church that either doesn't know them or doesn't care to get involved. Or they stop attending church altogether with little to no remorse. Often they retain their Christian friends or their Christian friends overlook their sin. And so uh, it doesn't seem like it would be that big of a deal. According to one source, 200,000 free citizens and 500,000 slaves populated first century Corinth. The one and only church is estimated to have been under 200 believers. And so you were in a group of 200 people surrounded by 700,000 people in a totally wicked culture. And this was the only place, there was no internet, there were no books you could read, there was nothing, this was the only game in town, you might say. And so to be put out of that group back into the world was severe. Uh, I was trying to do a comparison. I just took Fresno, for example. Fresno is what, about 550,000? So it's smaller than Corinth, but that's a lot of people, over half a million people. There are at least 150 churches in Fresno that I counted on one uh, list of Fresno churches. I'm sure there's at least another 50 or 100. But even at 150, um, you can go to church you know, 150 different places, or you can go over to Clovis or come down to Hanford or, I mean, you, you know, it, it, so we don't have any sense of what this would be like. Uh, and especially in an age when there was no real great transportation, where you had to walk to church, uh, you know, and that kind of a thing. And so this was huge. We don't relate to this anymore. Uh, we, we think of church in a very different way. And, and I'm not, not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying, you know, it, it was really really severe when this happened in the first century. The destruction of the flesh relates to the desired effect of being put out of the church. One commentator wrote, though the old sin nature is dead, having been crucified with Christ, the flesh lives on, having been educated in sin by the old nature, the devil, and the worldly culture around us. And so the idea here is that the incestuous man would be made to see that this behavior was carnal, fleshly, so he could put to death the things of the flesh. The church was telling him it was okay. It was to be celebrated because of God's grace. And Paul says, yeah, not so much. Get out of the church until you repent. And so it would, it would confront him with sin. It was also a warning that he could be headed for a premature death. In the first century, God was disciplining some believers by taking them home prematurely. He was killing them. Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. In 1 Corinthians, we'll read about some people who were dying because they were uh, depraved at the Lord's Supper. And so this is a big deal. It says that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That looks forward to the, uh, the discipline resulting in repentance and restoration, getting him back on the path of reward when he sees Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? First, let me say this, and this was new to me. Leaven is different from yeast. Now, you're probably saying, I can't believe you didn't know that, Pastor Gene. I learned that in kindergarten when they were teaching me about genders. Uh, but you know, I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. 
just want to know if you're still listening. Yeast was not plentiful in Bible times, but beyond even that, yeast is considered something fresh and wholesome. In contrast, leaven is the keeping back of a portion of last week's dough, allowing it to ferment and then adding it to the new dough. It would eventually, over time, become totally corrupted and uh, not good. One scholar speculated the following. He says, because of the fermentation process, which week after week increased the dangers of infection, the Israelites were commanded once a year to purge their homes of all leaven. During the feast, they would bake only unleavened bread, from which dough they would then start up the process again after the feast. Thus, in the New Testament, leaven became a symbol of the process by which an evil spreads insidiously. Is that the way? Insidious. Yeah, insidiously. Losing my mind in a community until the whole has been affected by it. So the old leaven was the incestuous man. They were a new batch of dough in danger of spiritual contamination. And so therefore purge, uh, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Knowing Jesus is like celebrating a perpetual feast of unleavened bread. Meaning... Basically, we need not be contaminated as a gathering of believers. There's a super duper important principle in this verse, or I should say behind Paul's thinking in this verse, and it is simply this, be what you already are as a Christian. They weren't becoming a new lump by works over a period of time. They already were a new lump because of the sacrifice Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If there was corruption, it was because they were allowing it in, and so they were called upon to be what they already were. A lot of modern Christianity is people trying to become better on their own through various methods and programs sold in Christian bookstores mostly. What is missing is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. You are crucified with Jesus. You are raised from the dead in him. You are seated with him in the heavenlies. You have everything you need for godly living. You are able to deny the flesh and you are able to yield to the spirit. That's who you and I are because we've been born again and each of us has the same access to the same Holy Spirit who indwells us. And when we face a difficulty and say, what are the 10 steps I need to do in order to overcome this difficulty, it is, in a sense, denying the power of God. And so if, if we could step back from things for a minute, just, be, you know, just look at it logically, you have God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, indwelling you. You have his power available to you. Or I could do these 10 steps myself on my own, giving God, you know, asking God to maybe help me a little bit, uh, and, and I'm going to achieve the same thing. I think maybe you should just do, do it with God and believing that you are who you are. A lot of times in counseling, I'll ask people, are you unable to do what God is asking you or are you unwilling? Because those are the only two choices. If you're not a believer, you're unable to do certain things. We'll talk about that again in a moment. If you're a believer, it's that you're unwilling because the Holy Spirit indwells you. And so uh, it's an important part of Scripture. When we read Scripture, this is who we are. Now, of course, we're being sanctified. We're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean I can sin and sin and sin and sin or have no power over sin until it's all over. I can 
say no to sin and yes to God anytime I want. And so the application of be what you already are in Corinth was to be the unleavened lump they already were by judging and removing sin in their midst. So when the believers got together, they probably didn't think about this as an illustration until Paul brought it up that they, they could think, hey, we're, a, we're the unleavened bread of the new covenant because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And, and you can't allow contamination to come into a situation like that. You have to deal with it for everybody's good. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven nor the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Simply put, he's saying, stay unleavened, but if you find leaven in the lump, mourn for it and remove it. Now, I'm not going to talk about church discipline per se. This text doesn't really give details. It's not here to teach us anything about church discipline, except that we acknowledge that churches have both the authority and the responsibility to discipline its members. The incestuous man was to be put out of the church to be exposed to the world so he would repent. Too often the modern believer chooses on their own to be exposed to the world, and that's not a good thing. We are called upon to reveal to non-believers the gold standard of sexual morality. Be what you already are as a Christian, as a single Christian or as a married Christian. That's our responsibility. Do you have true tolerance when it comes to sexual sinners outside the body? Whether you ought to be tolerant or intolerant, that's going to depend on how you understand the words. This quote is going to help, I hope. The original definition of tolerance and the way in which the word is used now are quite different. Originally, tolerance meant to acknowledge that others have differing beliefs and accept it that is their right to do so. In this way, Christians are to absolutely be tolerant. Recently, tolerance has come to mean accepting that those other beliefs are true, something Christians absolutely cannot do. Spend any time on blogs and you'll find what's true and false. Everything is tolerated except what you believe as a Christian. And so it's a different use of the word. So when I say tolerant, I'm using the proper, true use of it that other people have opinions that are not yours. Uh, and we need to acknowledge that that's the world that we live in. And Paul is going to suggest a general level of tolerance towards sinful non-believers in order that we would be able to give them the gospel they need. And so verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. I did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world. There is what scholars call a lost letter that Paul wrote prior to this one. Uh, so if you want to get confused, this is 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is 3 Corinthians unless there was another letter. Anyway, he gave them wise counsel that was misunderstood. He assumed they'd understand when he said, don't keep company with sexually immoral people, that he was talking about believers in the church, not non-believers. And so verse 10 goes on, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. We should not go out of the world. I think Paul was being sarcastic. You know, you, there's only way to do that is to not be in this world. But we sometimes go out of the world by isolating ourselves. We're all part of the Great Commission. God has sown us with the gospel in order to reach people. And I'm not saying what I'm not saying, but so hear me. I mean, but the idea, there's a... There's a certain desire that wells up in the heart of every Christian, I think, and some more than others, of, of real isolationism. I'm just tired of it. I'm going to go somewhere where it's all Christians. That, that doesn't work. Uh, but, uh, 
you finally just you want to go someplace and you know just be alone and not have any effect uh, on the gospel and and you know that that's not what we're called to do it's too easy for us to overlook that the people around us are not saved we expect them to be honest and kind and respectful when it is not human nature and when they don't have the infilling of the holy spirit now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother or a sister who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. This obviously is not meant to be an exhaustive list of sins. If you can find somebody who's a liar, then it's okay. Uh, no, it's just uh, the idea that this is what the world is like, and we need to understand that. Some have interpreted not even to eat with such a person as excluding them from the Lord's Supper. But that can't be it, because if they've been put out of the church, there's no opportunity for them to attend anyway. This has to do with our personal relationships with believers who are in real, obvious, continuous sin. I certainly don't have all the answers for every possible situation. There's a church I know of that spent... I'm going to say three years, I think it was, three years going through a 100-page pamphlet on church discipline uh, in their church services so that everybody knew exactly what to do in every possible situation when it came to church discipline, and, and that's just not possible. Uh, we have talked about church discipline before in Matthew 18, and if we get there again, we'll talk about it, but um, the idea is that uh, you can't know everything that you're supposed to do. There's broad outlines, and so let's remember that. We must begin, here's a couple of tips I have though, we must begin to see the sinning saint as someone who is headed for destruction, needing to be helped. The help they need is to be made aware of how heinous their sin is, both to them and to others they claim to love. And so again, if you step forward to confront or to discipline, it's out of love, it's with a mournful heart because something is wrong with the person and it could spread. And when we do encounter them, we ought to urge them to repent. That's kind of all there is to talk about if a believer is living in open sin. Let's say this man was part of our fellowship and he got put out of the fellowship and then you run into him uh, at Save Mart. Hey, how you doing? Have you repented of your incest yet? Because we'd love to have you back on Sunday morning. You might not want to do that in line or too loud, but uh, that's kind of the... And it sounds funny or weird, however, but, but really... This, is a, you know, this sin is not going to be good for him, and it's certainly not going to be good for the body, and, and he needs to be urged to repent. And that's the conversation that we're going to have. Won't that drive them away? Well, if you mean that they'll be out, of the, out in the world instead of enjoying the believers, yeah. And that's a good thing according to these verses. Um, we don't, like I said earlier, we don't feel the gravity of it the way we would have in the first century because there's so many other churches to go to where they don't know anything about us. And very rarely do churches call ahead and say, hey, you've got this guy or gal going there that we were disciplining. Uh, but it, it's still the means that we use. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? They had the wrong posture towards those who are outside. Of course, non-believers will be sexually immoral, idolatrous, covetous, reviling, drunken extortioners. That, that's what they are. Not every non-believer that you know or work with or go to school with is as bad as they could be, but this is what they are in their old nature. And you and I cannot expect non-believers to act kindly or lovingly 
It's a bonus if you get along with any non-believer. It's, it's to be expected because they don't have the Holy Spirit and the devil and the world are still pounding on them. They're taken captive by the devil to do his will. You should expect to be attacked and ground up every day you're around non-believers. And if you're not, man, good for you. But Paul says, hey, this is what's outside and guess who they need? They need Jesus. And guess who has Jesus? Well, you do. And so let's figure out a way to bring them the Lord. We should think of ourselves as first responders sent by God to save them with the gospel. A firefighter who rolls up on a traffic accident doesn't go up to the highway patrolman and say, who's the drunk driver? Because we're not going to bother with that guy. Oh, it's that guy pinned in his car over there in imminent danger. Okay. Yeah. uh, He's going to get what he deserves. We'll deal with these other people. No, you, you don't have the right to make those moral judgments. Society does that differently. You're a first responder. You're there to save people. And, and the people in the world, they're worse than drunk drivers because they're attacking you. They hate you. They revile you. And yet God says, yeah, and, and I died for them, just like I died for you. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. We judge inside, not outside the church. That can mean putting them out into the realm of the world, no longer associating with them, not even over a meal, unless it is to mourn and seek repentance. I've heard and read many Bible studies that speak of homosexuality in a way that goes way beyond the Bible into what would be accurately called hate speech. Now, I know that any time, a lot of what I said this morning, especially in my introduction, is going to be considered hate speech by the government. But it's not. It's just what the Bible teaches. But a lot of people really do go into a hate speech mode about how heinous and disastrous homosexuality is and where it's led to. No messages about adultery are like that. I mean, we still acknowledge that adultery and fornication are wrong, that they're sexual sin. But they're almost like venial sins now are in the Catholic Church. They're not the mortal sin of homosexuality. And all I'm saying is that we, you know, there are worse sexual sins. Even in Corinth, they said, hey, incest is, is really bad. And so we might have to rank them. But the idea is that in the church, there shouldn't be sexual sin. Not at all. Not on any ranking. And if there is, it's up to us as individuals to repent and as a fellowship to deal with it. Christians ought to do everything we can to legislate biblical sexual morality in our society. You know, a lot of times people say you can't legislate morality. That's what legislation is. It's legislating morality. We just wanted to legislate our morality, biblical morality, because a society that doesn't follow biblical morality is headed to degeneration and death. We don't care about the studies and stats, though. The best thing we can do is to live out biblical sexual morality in front of the world. And to the extent that I'm not doing that, and that you're not doing that, we need to repent and then just make sure that we keep ourselves an unleavened lump, be what we already are. 